0: You turn tonight in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 as we begin the fourth chapter here, and we're getting into the good stuff. You know, the first three chapters kind of tell us the bad story, amen? Who we are without Christ and what it looks like if you really uh, want to take a stock in mankind and what man can do. And we turn the corner here and we first uh, greet Abraham this amazing man of faith, and Paul uses the totality of chapter 4 with Abraham as an example, And, and he teaches us here in the first eight verses some principles of spiritual accounting. You might call it Spiritual Accounting 101. This is an introductory course on how to account for righteousness. Now when you look at your own life, people are tempted to, and people often do, list a number of things whereby they think that in doing those things or being those things, is another correct way to look at it, that they're okay with God. And as we've said, as we've journeyed through the first three chapters, very often those are works that we would associate with righteousness. In other words, someone who's morally good or ethically good, someone who's better than other people. Very often people will say they're okay with God and here's the reason why. And so if you were a Jewish man and you were going to use an example of someone whom you could rightly say if there was ever anyone who was good enough, Abraham might be a great example to use. And so the Apostle Paul here begins chapter 4 by pointing out spiritual accounting principles. When we talk about accounting, there are normally... A journal entries within your books, and those books normally come in the form uh, of the positive side, or the profit, and the negative side, or the loss. And so you put positive things like any type of income that you have, that goes on the positive side. And any type of expense you have, that's why it's normally called an income and expense, goes on the negative side. In other words, just spend it. Can I tell you that if we were to try and balance our own books, we'd come up negative an awful lot of billions and trillions of dollars, spiritually. If you tried to account for your own righteousness, if you tried to say, look, I can put enough in on the positive side to cancel out my bad side. And so now the apostle begins here in verse 1 of Romans chapter 4 with another statement, what then shall we say? And then he uses Abraham. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, again, we thank you so much, God, for meeting us in this place, for loving us, for adopting us, for making us your children, for giving us the precious gift of faith. And we pray now as we study your word once again, as we turn our attention to what you authored that we might know you, your word. Would you make it sweet? Would you make our fellowship with you one? Would you take away the distractions of the day of our lives, of the things that perhaps we're distracted with? Lord, maybe there was something that happened today and we're thinking about it. Would you help us to focus in on your word and to learn from you? We bless you, we thank you, we praise you, and God's people all said, amen. Verse 1, first eight verses here, Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, is found according to the flesh? What is it that the works of the flesh have afforded the great patriarch of faith, Abraham, the one on whom the Jewish people so greatly hung their hat, that they would declare to a Gentile, we are of the tribe of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What should we say about him according to the works that he was able to do according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, and that was the basic Jewish belief, that Abraham was a righteous man, and his righteousness as a man, in other words, his works as a human being that were good, his righteous works were good enough. That he was a prime example of the keeper of the law, that he was the one to whom you could look at and say, here's a man who knew what it was like to live righteously, so much so that God accepted Abraham. Abraham. They missed it by that much. Just a couple of words. Take them out of those sentences and you'll find out they were actually correct. But they were incorrect because it was not the righteous man Abraham. It was the righteousness in the man Abraham. What should we say? That our father Abraham is found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about. But not before God. But not before God. You see, therein lies our problem. Most people find something to boast about, about themselves. They can't really do it before God, so they do it before men. Well, I'm better than you are, and we're better than they are. And our collective they is better than the other group over there in that country and their collective they. It becomes about the righteousness of human beings. For what does Scripture say? Again, this is a study in Old Testament theology of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Abraham believed God. This is not from the New Testament, it's from the book of Genesis. Abraham believed believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In a biblical sense, in a way that his books could be balanced, the righteousness of God was put in Abraham's account and Abraham's sin was put in Christ's account. They were swapped. That's in the Old Testament, folks. That's not the New Testament. That's the Old Testament. It was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. The easiest way to understand this is your own job. When you go to work, and you work the hours that you work, and you do the tasks that you do, the money that you, that you get in the form of a paycheck is actually due you. Your employer has an obligation to either issue you a paycheck, give you some cash, or put it directly into your bank account. It is a debt on the employer that you have earned. Now think of it from a spiritual standpoint. If you're going to be saved... Because the wages of sin is death, you have to have all of your sin paid for. Amen? Not most of it. Not some of it. You have to have all of it paid for. So the debt is immense. It's huge. That's the picture. He's trying to get us thinking right. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies, and now here's where faith and the resultant grace that comes from believing by faith comes into view, but simply believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. Notice it's not his works. It has nothing to do with him even knowing about faith. You see, to some people, faith actually becomes work as well. They're so messed up in their head that they think if they understand things correctly, they get a principle in their head, and it is the principle in their head that they call faith that that work of believing something from an intellectual level results in salvation. And the Apostle Paul is saying, "Mm -mm, wait a second. Let's examine this real closely. This passage should be a massive encouragement to you who believe you can earn God's favor. You can end it all right here with these eight verses. It is faith that results in grace and that unmerited favor. It is God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that saves you. Hallelujah? It's not your good, it's not you go to the right church, it's not you have the right translation of the Bible, it's not that you went to a class and you learned how to be a Christian. You are saved by faith, Period. And it's accounted for righteousness. And now he uses David as an example, but as an example of the faith of Abraham. And just as David also describes the blessedness of a man to whom God imputes righteousness, that imputed righteousness is referring referring to Abraham. Apart from works. And that word apart's an interesting one. Because it means and can mean in spite of. It can mean without. It has the totality of meaning that says, look, you could take all of your works and none of them can do what faith and grace can do. That's why he's going to go on and write for all of our works or his filthy rags. They're nothing. They're trash. They're garbage. I count all of it lost. The Apostle Paul will eventually write. And then again, quoting from the Psalms, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Hallelujah. Amen? I need my lawless deeds forgiven. Why? If my lawless deeds aren't forgiven, 100% of them, I can't see God. Ever. I'm toast. I'm done. It's over. But what's in view here is how to account for these things. What actually happens? And whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man, to whom the Lord shall not again, same word, impute, sin. You see, God can either take Christ's righteousness and put it in your account, or he will have to take your sin and leave it there. So you either have to have all of your sin removed and Christ's righteousness put in its place, or you have to take the sin And somehow deal with it on your own, because it's still there. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman to whom the Lord shall not account. It's the same exact word. Logizomai. Will not count that sin to you. Counts that sin to Christ. Christ. If there's any doctrine in the entire Bible, I believe that Satan attacks consistently, it is the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, and our understanding of it. Why? Because if he can mess with the doctrine of salvation, if he can get you to think that you're saved by any other means than God's gift of faith. Now turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2, and let's read this together. Follow along with me here. Verse 8, it's one that most of you, many of you may know by heart. Check out what it says. Do not miss the implication in light of the passage that we're currently studying. Verse 8, Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay, so it's God's grace that comes to you through the vehicle of faith. God's grace through faith. Very important you understand that. So it is the faith that actually is the saving instrument, if you want to look at it that way. The faith, notice what it says about that faith, and that not of yourselves but it is a gift of God. The faith that you need to believe that is essential to receive the grace of God, you cannot manufacture, you cannot understand even in an intellectual way, you can't buy it, you can't procure it from someone else. That faith that you need to be saved to receive the grace of God comes to you. Notice what it says. It is a gift. And then just in case we miss it, not of works lest anyone should boast. Is that plain enough in light of our passage? This is a truth you have to lay hold of, family of God. Because if you take Romans 4 and Ephesians 2 and you put them together, you will understand the most important doctrine in the entire Bible. The doctrine of justification by faith. Because I am justified by faith alone. The only way that I can be completely vertically right with God is by God dealing with my sin. He cannot simply erase my sin. The price for it must be paid. Because He's not just if He lets me slide on it, because He will not let everyone slide on their sin. Do you understand what I'm saying? People will perish, and they will go to hell because of their sin. So he can't excuse anyone's sin. He doesn't just overlook it. He doesn't say about a Christian, well, I'm just not looking at yours. He actually has to punish your sin. So instead of you paying the price, Jesus Christ pays the price for you. You are justified. This is monumental Because every religion in the world, to some degree, views it from the other side of the coin. Every cult views it from the other side of the coin. There's something that you can do, something that you can know, some organization you can belong to, some church that if you join the church, they teach basically salvation by organization. That if you're part of us, then you're saved. And yet your Bible says... There is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. And then it is told to us very plainly that the only way that you can be saved is by receiving a free gift of the very thing that you need, which is faith. That faith causes you to believe. That belief is sufficient for you to receive God's grace. So every bit of it is in God's hands. It's totally a free gift. But God permanently deals with your sin, not by ignoring it, but by punishing Jesus Christ for it. And he takes the righteousness of Christ, which you don't have, And he puts that righteousness into your account, so when God looks at your account, he sees only the perfect righteousness of Christ. Your sin was punished. Just like everyone's sin, in order for God to be perfectly just, your sin must be punished. The wages of sin is death. So someone has to die for your sin. Praise God for the believer, it's Jesus. Satan hates this doctrine because it's good for everybody. Who can't receive a gift? If it's up to you understanding something, you're in trouble. I can understand a lot, but there are things I can't understand. If when I became a Christian, if me understanding this doctrine was what I needed to do to be saved, I would never have gotten saved. I'm explaining it to you as the church, and we're going to offer you an opportunity. If you're here tonight, you've not received the gift of the faith necessary to believe. We'll invite you to do that tonight. But you have to receive the faith gift and say, God, I want faith to believe. And then he gives you grace. And because of that grace, he deals with your sin by his own son's blood. Let's break this down. You see, this is central to understanding who we are as Christians. Hinduism teaches works. Islam teaches works. Buddhism teaches works. Confucianism teaches works. Mormonism works. Catholicism works. Every ism known to man is works based at some level. You must do this, you must belong to this, you must understand this, you need to walk the eightfold path, you need to understand you're part of the royal priesthood, you need to belong to this specific group in order to have a right relationship with God. And yet God cries out from his word and says, by grace you have been saved through faith and that is not of yourself, it is a gift of God lest any of us should boast. That's why he can use the example of Abraham. Think about it for a second. Why does he use Abraham as an example? There's three principal reasons, I believe. Number one, Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Judaism and the law. So if you needed to understand the law of God or you needed to have even the Ten Commandments and then the Levitical law, Abraham was before that. So he wasn't even privy to the original law. Moses handed down the law. So here's Abraham before Judaism. That's the first reason. The second reason. Why is he using him as an example of salvation by faith? Duh, he was like you. He's a human being. He wasn't an exalted human being. He wasn't a special human being. He was a silly, ignorant at times, very messed up human being. Amen? Hallelujah. I see that hand. Amen. I'm raising mine. Messed up human being. He wasn't some specially guarded dude that grew up in a cave someplace that, you know, the Shekinah glory of God glowed on him and everywhere he went, I'm Abraham. <laughs> he was a man, a good man. One might even say a great man, but nonetheless, he was nothing but a man. A third reason, and I believe the most important, because Abraham was a perfect example of someone who couldn't save himself. And so he had to be justified. His accounting balance needed to be taken care of. His debts needed to be wiped out. His loss column far exceeded his profit column. And so he had to have that debt taken care of because every time Abraham turned the corner, he made a mess of stuff. Amen? And so as we look at Abraham's life, we can see ourselves in the windows. we stare at him. Look, Abraham when you think about it, notice what it says in the first two verses. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Well, the fact of the matter is he wasn't justified by his works, because his works, El Stunko, That's literal. Yeah, that's that's in the original language. You can't see it there. It was terrible. Abraham was an example primarily of human failure. He was not a human example of someone who was really spectacularly righteous. We have to agree with what God says about him. And so when you think about him, he, he was just simply a man. And he would make mistakes and ask for forgiveness. He would make more mistakes and then he'd ask for forgiveness. And then he'd make some really bad mistakes and then ask for forgiveness. And then he would get really sorry and make some more mistakes and ask for some more forgiveness. So he's a picture of us. Amen. That's kind of how our lives go at times, isn't it? Now, praise the Lord when we begin to be renewed in our minds and transformed and God works in our lives. It's a lot longer between those major mistakes. Maybe if you're really good, you might even go most of your life without doing anything really spectacularly dumb. But chances are you're going to do something spectacularly dumb. Maybe before you get home. Praise God that the righteousness that was put in your account by Christ on the cross was sufficient for all your sins, amen? Not just the ones you've already kind of done and not the ones that you did today, but yours throughout your entire lifetime until you take your last breath and everyone else's who has ever walked the face of the earth. Amen? Hallelujah! You should be applauding. This is really good news. This is why the gospel is called the good news, amen? Because if it's about you being righteous and perfect, or Abraham being righteous and perfect, we are T-O-A-S-T, toast, amen? That's an acrostic. I haven't figured out something for it yet, but just you work on it and let me know. Totally obnoxious. I'm stuck there. Yeah, we're terrible. Abraham was justified by faith alone. Think about it. What does verse 3 say? For what does Scripture say? Abraham was really, really, really amazingly righteous. Does it say Abraham never sinned? Does it say Abraham was circumstantially perfect in everything that he thought about every circumstance that he ever went through? Because see, a lot of people think that righteousness is in essence, esoteric and existential. In other words, you take the circumstance and the situation, and you, with your human mind, rightly discern what is the problem with it or the mess with it, and as long as you don't do anything, it actually transgresses your own thought about the matter. It becomes existential at that point. It's, it's of your existence. Then you can take and do whatever you want with it because you have rightly in your heart believed you were okay that's a lot of people that's why we have people right now sitting in college campuses having cry-ins because they think it's okay they feel their feelings are hurt yeah it's like we're all about how we think about stuff right from God's perspective what you think hate to tell you this don't matter God's not going to die. Hey, Jeff, what do you think about this sin? I know I said it was sin, but I'm starting to rethink it a little bit. And I realize billions of people have done it. And I've already sent many of them uh, to Hades permanently. But, you know, um, could we maybe change our mind on that one? God doesn't do that. He has to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if something was sin in the past, it has to be sin in the future. So what you think about it, how you feel about it, does not matter to God. What he says is the standard, period. So if he's spoken on it, that's it. So whether you don't like the outcome, God don't care. And I don't mean to say that he doesn't care about you. He doesn't care that you don't like what he said. So if he says something, sin, it's sin. Mankind's always trying to deal with God. Well, I don't like that you made that sin, God. So what does he say? Abraham believed God. He agreed with God. He said, God, you are right. And I, Abraham, am absolutely wrong. We call that repentance. Repentance. God's over there, you're going that way. In order to go over there, you have to turn around, do a 180, and go where God's going. That's called repentance. You agree with God. How does that happen? We say, God, I can't fix this. You have to fix it for me. And so notice what he does. He takes that faith, believing that we have said God is right, And he has every reason to judge us and has judged us on the cross at Christ's death. The price for your sin was paid. And so he takes that righteousness of Christ and he accounts it. That's what he says. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Notice he didn't fix the problem. Abraham believed God and that fixed the problem. Because Abraham still couldn't make a full payment of the problem. He simply believed God. And God took care of the problem for him. Took the righteousness of Christ's account and put it in Abraham's account and took Abraham's sin out of his account, put it into Christ's account, and it was paid for in full by the blood of Christ. Amen? Amen. This is essential stuff and you need to be able to explain this to people so that you can help them from walking in religion you want them walking in a right relationship with God not in religion you're not saved by Calvary Chapel you're not even saved by understanding fully the Bible you're saved by one thing faith and that faith is a gift that's given to you you say God I don't get it I believe what you said. I'm believing you. Your word says this is what I need to do. And you believe, and God's grace is placed on your life. And through that grace, he deals fully with your sin by punishing his own son at Calvary's cross and taking his righteousness and putting it in your account. This is awesome stuff. This frees you from performance-based religion Notice I didn't say it frees you to be able to sin. We're not teaching antinomianism here. Anti meaning against and nomos the law. Not against the law. The law still stands. The moral law is absolutely God's... Absolute perfect plan for mankind. So, what he said about himself then, he still says about himself now. We're not teaching against the law, the law bore witness to the fact that you're guilty and you need that gift and you need to have your sin taken care of. And so, we were justified by faith alone, nothing else. It was counted. It was reckoned. It was imputed. Those are all the same words, by the way. They're all the same exact word. So that you don't get messed up. The Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit, writes to us, look, just in case you miss it, reckon your books this way. Account your books this way. It was counted for you. It was accounted to you. It's the same word. Logosomai. You couldn't take care of it yourself, so God took care of it for you in Jesus. You believe him to do that. Let's break down Abraham. I, I, this is such an incredible passage. The book of Hebrews also uses Abraham as an example. And because you ladies are in it, I'm not going to expound on it here. But if you want a little preview, read, read Hebrews 11. Guess who's first up? It's Abraham. Abraham. Abraham? Seriously? I mean, seriously. Abraham? Let's roll through Abraham fairly quickly here. In Genesis chapter 12, it says about Abraham, verses 2 and 3, I will make you a great nation. Going to make Abraham a great nation. How's he going to do that? The dude is ancient and he's got no kids. His wife is ancient and past child rearing, and they have no kids. Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. That's pretty much faith, isn't it? I will bless you and make your name great. Well, your name is not going to be real great unless you got some prodigy, some progeny, unless you got some peoples. If you don't got no peeps, you ain't going to be great, okay? And so God speaks to Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. Abraham's going, yeah, right. Sure you are. So you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the entire earth shall be blessed. Can you hear Abraham going, (coughs) Yeah, right. Have you seen me? Have you noticed my wife? We are not exactly fertile. We have no children. We're in our 80s. It begins there. Abraham had no guarantee about anything except God said so. The Word of God. Thus says the Lord, is the word of the Lord. We have it in written form now. It's the word that came to Abraham. Nothing but God's word. When God called him to go, calls him out of his land, when when he he pulls him out of Ur of the Chaldees, he's in this pagan land with with a pagan king, obviously reared in a pagan home, all he knew is that God told him to go. Along with his father, his nephew, nephew Lot, his nephew not. <laughs> Try and say that three times fast. Nephew Lot, nephew Lot, nephew Lot. Abraham wasted 15 years in Haran. God speaks to him, and here's how he starts. I ain't going. I'm going to stay right here and... I need a little more encouragement. So he stays for 15 years until the group that lived with him and his family, until Terah dies. By that time, Abraham is now 75 years old or so. And they start this journey to Canaan, which is 1,200 miles away across the most inhospitable desert on the face of the earth, except for maybe one. One. Maybe the southern Sahara is worse, but the deserts of Iraq are about as desolate a place as you can possibly ever imagine. So Abraham and Sarah actually make it—that was faith in itself. Look on a map and find how many rivers are between the Euphrates and the Jordan. Anybody know the answer to that? Zero! Well, how many of you can walk for 1,200 miles in the desert without any water? Um, I can't. But somehow they managed to find watering hole after watering hole, whether they took the northern route and went up through Syria. we, We don't exactly know. We're not told all the details. But somehow they transited that desert and made it to Canaan. And then we find Abraham's faith. You talk about imperfect faith, his first test. He gets to the promised land, and what does he find? Famine. You talk about being tested by God. You told me this is the promised land. At least we had scorpions in the desert. You can imagine his mind going on this stuff. And so Abraham decides, well, can't trust you, God. I'll trust Egypt. And so he makes a deal with the Egyptians. And that disobedience puts him in a compromising situation with Pharaoh. So he doesn't want... Now, now Sarah's not exactly a spring chicken at this point, but somehow Pharaoh Caesar is hot, I guess. I don't know. But Abraham, he's either deluded... Or Sarah's, you know, kind of the babe at 75. I don't know. So Abraham goes, she's my sister. And what happens? Thought Pharaoh was going to kill him. Have his wife for himself. It's crazy. Abraham dishonors the Lord, caused plagues to come upon Pharaoh's family. Not exactly a great start. The Lord again re- reassures him. And as you travel through Abraham, and you start in chapter 11, and you, you work your way through about chapter 25 of the book of Genesis, the whole thing's about this dude who's a mess. And so here comes, well, you're going to have a child. Well, I don't believe you. But you told me so, so I'm going to take matters in my own hand. I'm going to ha- commit adultery with Hagar. That's how I'll show you I love you, God. This is the guy. It was accounted unto Abraham for righteousness. You hearing any good works in there? His whole life is a mess. And yet despite his spiritual imperfections, despite his future family, despite the fact he's made all these mistakes, you get to Isaac the son of Primus, through whom eventually all of the nations of the earth would be blessed, amen? It's in the lineage of Jesus. That's how that happened. But that little seed of faith, the faith that caused Abraham to to get out of Ur of the Chaldees and to wander across the desert, however imperfectly he did it, you can imagine, he's cursing God the whole way. That's what I'd be doing. I would be exactly like the Israelites in the wilderness. You sent me out here to die. That's what I'd have done. Maybe I don't have the faith of Abraham but I want you to see something. Abraham didn't have great faith either. But he had enough faith because it was the faith that God gave him to believe. He believed in the gift. The same gift that you believe in now. The same gift that comes to you, just as Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says. God sees that little seed and He says, Jeff, here's faith for you to believe. Trust me. Going, okay, God, I don't know how this works, but I'm believing you. That's why He can be that example. And all of this, all of what? All of His failures? All of his imperfections? All of his flaws? All of his messiness? All of his dumb things? All of his total misunderstanding of theology? All of that? No. The only thing that could take care of that man's problem was the same thing that takes care of yours. Faith. Real faith. Faith that dares to say, God, I have no idea how this is going to work out. But I believe you. I believe in you. And I'm trusting you with my eternity. You see, sometimes people come to me and they want me to explain, you know, all of the basic doctrines of faith in like three minutes. Seriously. You know, well, kind of just give me the short version, because I want to know if this is for me or not. And I'm like, okay, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, you need Jesus. <laughs> and they say, Well, I don't believe that. And I said, Well, I don't care if you don't believe that, God's word says it. And this is how it goes usually. And they'll say, well, how do I fix it? A faith. No, no, really, how do I fix it? Faith. Well, what can I do? Nothing. And in less than like a minute and a half, I can bring them generally to the place it's like, I'm dead. Yep, that's exactly it. You're dead without Jesus. That's what's supposed to happen. Now, for some people, it takes them 60, 70 years to figure out they're dead without Jesus. 80 years, 90 years, their deathbed, I'm dead without Jesus. For some people, like me, it was 13. Maybe you were five. My boys accepted Christ and they're very young. They got it. They saw it. They understood it. But we all do it the same way. Faith. And then my sin is yanked out of my account, dealt with fully and completely, stuck on Jesus' back, punished at the cross before I ever did it, paid for in full before I ever did everything I've ever done and will ever do, paid for all of it. And so then the righteousness that is necessary for Jeff is put in my account. So God looks at my account and goes, you're good. All of it, all of this was accounted to him as righteousness. You see, faith itself even really is not the reason. It's not the basis for us being justified before God. It's a gift. That's why it says what it says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So you, so you can't just understand what faith is. You can't just do the things on the outside that look like you have faith. You have people that do that. I'll pray a lot. You have people that try and show how much faith they have by beating themselves on the back and crawling on broken glass up the stairs of churches. You have people making pilgrimages halfway across the world to go stand someplace so that their faith will be increased. That's not what God's getting at. God's asking you to come to the place to where you yourself recognize you can't fix the problem. It's an impossibility. And then you recognize the one who can fix the problem. And then God says, Here is enough faith for you to believe. And in you believing, I'm going to impart my unmerited favor to you by removing your sins. Punishing my son Jesus for him, and I'm going to put your, his righteousness in your account. It's purely on Christ. Get it, folks. It's purely on the Lord. Not even the faith can become a work to you. That's so important we understand this. Because if you get this, then you don't get condemned. When we get to chapter 7, 8, 9... For there is now there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, how do you get in Christ Jesus? By receiving the gift of faith. Not by coming to church. By believing. Abraham believed God. And it was accounted, it was put into his account as righteousness. Family, that's why we can't save ourselves. Look, we're sinners. We're incapable of the divine in that sense. It can't happen. You can do good things, so can I. But you can't do divine things. You are incapable of being divine. So am I, and so is every other human being. That's why I always kind of, I have to admit, I snicker a little bit when people say, oh, well, you know, he's got the divine spirit in him. And they're talking about, you know, an ability to deny the flesh or whatever. The only thing I've got in me, according to Scripture, is filth. That's what I can do. All of my good works. God has to actually sort all that out by grace. As he gives me a gift of faith. I I can't save myself. No matter how generous, no, how sac- no matter how sacrificial or, or beneficent, no, no matter how many good works you might do, none of them are capable of paying for your son because you're not God. So even your attempt to pay for your own sins will be tainted by the fact that you'll probably do it with the wrong heart you may feel guilty that you got caught. You, you may have something in your life. Well, I just don't, you know, I, I feel bad about what I did. You see, feeling bad doesn't save you. The price has to be absolutely paid, and you can't pay it. Third thing is if we could do it ourselves, then why did Christ die on Calvary's cross? He was God. He could have just skipped all of that. He could have come down and said, well, I wanted to die on the cross. It was really unnecessary because Jeff's going to be able to do it himself. You know, after all, he's a pretty good guy. No, it's absolutely necessary. If it had been Mahatma Gandhi was the only guy on earth, Jesus would have needed to die. If it had been Mother Teresa, Jesus would have needed to die. You or me, he would have needed to die. The Dalai Lama, dead man. Doesn't matter. Because our hearts are deceitful, they're desperately wicked, and who can know them? Even the motivation of our goodness very often is ill-motivated, isn't it? I'm not asking you to raise your hand. Think on this for a second. (laughs) Haven't you done the right thing for the wrong reason in your life? Think about it. I have. I'll tell you straight up, I've done the right thing for the wrong reason. I, 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 I've given to homeless people at times just to get them to go away. Anybody else? Yeah, don't raise your hand. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying, right? You've done the right thing. You should have done that. I should do that. But sometimes it's like, I' am just tired, you know, I don't want this guy to follow. I don't want to be stalked. Not, God, I want to help this guy. So even my motivation for doing something very good is a whole lot less than perfect. Christ needed to die for that. I did a good thing, but I did it the wrong way. So important you grasp this. If you could save yourself, guess whose glory would be higher than God's? Yours. Is that not exactly what Satan's fall was all about? Wasn't that it? I will exalt my throne above the Most High. That means that Satan was attempting to be as righteous as or greater than God. And so if you could take care of your own sin, that would make, guess who God? You. Which, by the way, is exactly what Mormonism teaches you can become an exalted man. You can actually become a god. You can inhabit your own planet. You can have your own spirit lives. And they can make spirit babies to inhabit the lives of people who are yet born. That's how jacked up we can get, folks. That's what happens. You start trying to figure out, well, how do we make this whole thing work? I know we'll make us like God. That's from the pit of hell. That was the original fall. So when you see people saying, well, I'm good, you can look at them and say, yeah, you probably are, but you're not good enough. Well, I do good things. Yeah, you probably do, but they're not good enough. Well, I want to be good. Well, that's great. You should want to be good, but you can never be good enough because the standard of is God's righteousness. And you, by yourself, can't get there. You need him. That's why the faith that is given to you is reckoned. It's put into your account as righteousness. Simple way for you to think about faith. Faith, you have to have the right facts. A little acrostic here for you. I was into acrostics this week. I don't know why. So there's an acrostic for you. So you, ha- you have to agree with those represented facts. I am a sinner and I need a savior. That's the fact, Jack. Amen? You-, you have to have an agreement to that. That's the A. Here's the facts. I agree with you, God. Second thing, it's not a mental You've got to internalize. You've got to believe it yourself. I say, God, those are the facts. I agree with them. I'm owning it. Then comes the real step for us. I got to trust God. You see, because you can't actually go to heaven and look in the doors and go, yep, I want that. You can't see beyond your own soul into into eternity and go, well, I don't really like the one that I'm going to get because it's going to be in hell. You can't see that, so you have to trust God that he's right and what he says is perfect. And then after that, your very present help in a time of trouble, your hope is God. Your hope is Christ Jesus, your Lord. It's not you being glorified. It's him already glorified paying for you. It's him taking care of the price that you owe. And so faith is the only way. There is no other way. It's the substance of things hoped for and it is the evidence of things not seen. You see, there is substance to faith. Those two words are so important. There's substance to your faith, but it's the substance of heaven. And there's hope that what you believe in is going to actually bear forth fruit in your life eternally, but that hope is also the hope of heaven. So it has substance, and it's very hopeful. It has evidence, and the evidence is this. You're changed. Your life's different. You think differently. You have different desires and wants and ideas. It may not be perfect, Who is our example? Abraham. Was his life perfect? Far from it. So take great hope in that. Don't shoot at Abraham's mistakes. Try and be like Jesus as much as you possibly can. But recognize in your weakness, he is strong. Your lacks, Jesus has more than enough to make up for. And so where you stumble, he can pick you up when you fall in. And the evidence is your changed life, that that's going on, that it's happened. For some of us, just being able to complete the sentence without using a four-letter word is a pretty major accomplishment. I've talked to a number of people this week that the the number one thing they see in their life is their speech got changed. For some people, it's their thought life. For some people, it's they were addicted to one thing or another. Maybe it was horrible relationship. Maybe it was no relationship and they were just messed up in their heads. But now they're a whole lot less messed up. And God's at work. And so that faith is evidenced by their changed life. And so how does that happen? Well when you think about it God blesses us. He blesses us Later with eternal life, he gives us the the life that is eternal even now. He changes things today to make them more like they will be in the future. It's not in cars and boats and planes and diamond rings and all the stuff that man holds dear. It's the substance of heaven that comes into your life. Every believer is justified by one thing. And that's faith. We believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and God gives us the faith to do that. That faith results in in his grace coming upon our lives. That's God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a complete and total unmerited favor of God put upon you as a sinner. The result of that is total justification Because remember what we've already read, he is both the just one, the just, and the justifier, the one who makes us right. And because he's perfect and he must be absolutely just, he can't just simply overlook your sin. He has to punish it. So instead of punishing you, he punishes Jesus and then takes Jesus' righteousness and sticks it in your account so that when he looks at your account, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Amazing. Unbelievable. That's God's accounting. We'd never come up with that plan. Man would never come up with that plan. You know why? There's no money to be made in it. There's no money in that. It's a giveaway, it's a free gift. And so would you join me? and bring the worship team back out. Would you stand? Abraham was justified by only faith. David was justified by only faith. Rahab was justified by only faith. Jeff Gill has been justified by only faith. And that faith was given to all of us, 100% of us, as a gift from God. Didn't earn it, didn't come to enlightenment so I could receive it. God simply had mercy upon me, a pitiful sinner. And said, Jeff, I love you and I have a solution to your problem. And though you're not going to believe this, I want to give you a gift That gift will result in me pouring out my grace upon your life and I will then have my son Jesus pay for every last one of your sins which he's already done. So it's in the bank waiting for you to receive it. And I want to make that offer to you tonight. The righteousness of Christ is already in the bank. It's been paid. And so if you're here tonight And you've never received that gift of faith which results in grace, the grace gift, if you will. And you want to do that tonight because you have the understanding that you need to agree with God and say, yes, I'm a sinner. And yes, I need a Savior. And yes, I can't save myself. If you're here tonight and that's you, I want the church to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I just want to make available the good news of the gospel to those that might be in the, in the house tonight that don't know the Lord. If you're here tonight and you want to receive Christ where you're standing right now, I want you to simply raise your hand. Put your hand up in the air where I can see it. I'm going to pray with you. You're going to pray with me right where you're at. If that's you, I see that hand. Praise the Lord. Is there anyone else? Look, there, I see that hand as well. Praise God. Is there anyone else in this place tonight? You see, we don't know when we're going to take leave of this earth, but that gift is available to you tonight. And I simply am just asking you so you can take advantage of it because it's free. Christ offers it to you tonight for free. We have a couple of hands up. Is there anyone else? Family of God, I see that hand as well. Another hand. There's another hand. Don't be ashamed of the Lord. He loves you. Jesus died for you. Just slip your hand up. All we're going to do is pray with you. You're going to pray right where you're at. All right, let's pray together. Those that just raised your hands, you can put your hands down. And you're simply going to pray with me. But you need to believe in your heart right now these words Heavenly Father I agree with you and I know I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and I've been trying to save myself and I'm asking you now to give me the gift of faith so that I can believe and Jesus I believe that you died on Calvary's cross And you already paid the price for my sin. And so I'm asking you to take away the stain of my sin and to make me right with God. I promise to walk with you all of my days. I offer you my life as a living sacrifice. I thank you for forgiving me. And I thank you that you're going to write my name right now in the Lamb's Book of Life thank you for allowing me into your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. God bless you. And for those of you that just prayed that prayer, you are a child of God and don't let the enemy rip you off because he'll try. You're saved by that prayer of faith. Real faith. And God wants your faith to grow. So I'm going to have some pastors come forward after service. They're going to come forward. And if you'd like to come talk with any of them, if you need a Bible, we want to make sure you have one. We want to get you started on your journey of faith. If you don't know how to do that, but you need to be in fellowship, you need to be in prayer, you need to read the word, you need to grow. So we'd love to help do that. For the rest of us, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you. Thank you that we get to be here, that we get to be in the same place when New Kingdom kids take that step of faith. God, thank you for that. It's a holy moment. Lord, we're just so grateful for those that have received Christ tonight, and we pray that you'd help them to grow. Lord, you'd watch over their lives. And, Lord, for us that have already been the recipients of your great grace through faith, Lord, would you help us to walk in it? Protect us, Lord, from the attacks of the enemy. Help us to preach the gospel. Help us to bring people out so that they can hear the good news. Lord, we thank you for taking care of our debt of sin, placing it on the back of your son, Jesus. And, Jesus, we thank you that you didn't consider it robbery to go to that cross. But you did it willingly. And we love you. We bless your holy name. It's in the name of Christ we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Amen.